There's quite a lot going on in the church nowadays, isn't there? And that's because we are uh, trying to meet lots of different needs and different categories of our family all at the same time, and uh, it's, it's fantastic. The uh, purpose of my uh, being up here right now is to introduce and set it up for you to hear from some other folks across our generations. We had a welcome today from Kendall from our campus. We had a communion with a father and son uh, representing our teen ministry and uh, in the 50s as well. In just a little bit, we're going to hear from a disciple who's in the singles. We'll hear from a couple who I believe are in their 40s. I don't ask people their ages. But, uh, and then we have a really a, a very special closer today from some uh, well-respected uh, and loved people that are on our more senior side. And I'll explain that in a little bit. You know, um, it's been said that, uh, hey, did anybody in here grow up in your 50s? Raise your hand. Do you grow up in the 50s? Okay. That was a generation that's been said that people lost their innocence, right? Okay. How about anybody here grow up in the 60s? Okay. That's the time where we lost our authority, right? Okay. If you remember the 60s, you know what I'm talking about. Um, if Anybody here grow up in the 70s, that that's your formative years? Okay. Okay. Well, that's when people lost what it meant to love, the confused sex and love. So... And then the next age, the 1980s. Anybody here grew up in their 1980s, that those are their years? Okay. Well, a lot of folks from that period lost their hope. Okay, sorry. How about the 90s? Anybody grew up in the 90s? All right. It's been said, I didn't say it, that people lost their ability to reason. Did anybody grow up? In the first decade of this millennia. Raise your hand. Okay. It's been said that that group has lost their compass. So, I don't know. We've had a lot of challenges. Each, each era has their own baggage. And so, in order to embrace each other across these stereotypes and sometimes unfair assessments, it's really good that we stay in dialogue with each other and figure out what we can learn from one another. You know, it's interesting that Acts 2.39 was quoted by both Kendall and Mark today without any a planned script. And I love it because it says this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off and all whom the Lord our, your God will call. Interesting, that just covers all the span of human history. But that promise is really the message. And that message is cross-generational. The message begins with the teachings of the prophets going back about 750 years before Christ with Isaiah. And it, it goes all the way up into the person, the birth, and the life of Jesus and his deeds and his teachings and his example standing up to Roman and Jewish authorities. And it goes all the way through his murder, his death, and his burial, and his resurrection and ascension. But the message also includes how to receive salvation through that story. And so that is our message. It is cross-generational. And it's important that we realize, no matter if we were born, you know, 2,000 years ago, we're born, uh, you know, 12 years ago, and we're a candidate to study the Bible, it's the same message. And it's good to remember that. Let's look briefly into the mirror of time. The, um, the generations have been categorized by people in various ways, but this is one of the most popular ones. It's the greatest generation. Very few people left. That's the World War II generation. The um, lucky few, those who were born in such a period that they missed World War II, and good chance that they missed out on the smaller and shorter wars after that. And it was a prosperous time to get education, great jobs, and buy homes. And then there was the boomers up until 1964, that group. And I'm considered what you call a late boomer. I was born in 1959. And then you have the new, the new boomers, the Generation X, 1965 to 1982. And then, of course, you have the millennials. And then you have the Gen Z. I don't know what we're going to do when we run out of letters here, you know. So, but that's the generation. Now, think about this. Way back when the first group there, that's the kind of phone they had. Look what we have now. That phone on the bottom right-hand side of the screen is more powerful than any computer in 1959 when I was born. It can... It's massively more powerful. And it's a phone, not designed as a computer, but that's what it is. A lot has changed. Think about all the developments in that short period of time. So over these 70 years covered by these categories, 
It's interesting, there is no other 70-year period in the history of the human race that has brought about so many changes. So every once in a while, it's good to stop and say, well, where are we at? How do we fit into all this? Now, this next screen is just for us as a community that relates to us in this church. We are approaching 50 years of age. Our movement started around 1968 in both Dallas and Florida around this campus ministry movement. And it was first called the campus movement or the crossroads movement. Then it moved into the discipling movement era. And these, these terms were interchangeable sometimes and, and overlapped. And then it was the Boston movement. And that, but the Boston movement was, where it was about world outreach, right? Very much planting churches all over the place. How many of you were ever part of the Boston Church of Christ? Raise your hand. Okay, wow, that's, you are privileged few. You have a story. Okay, then there's the ICOC 1.0, as I call it. It was around 92 that that name became our moniker. And I call that 1.0 up until, uh, you know, about 2003. And in that period, our movement was about a strong mandate to get out, canvas the world, plant churches and pillar nations, and, you know, for the future. And then the next era, which was the last 11 years, was about cooperation. And we learned voluntary cooperation. It was a new skill that our fellowship learned. I think that there's a 3.0 coming up. And I don't have the authority to tell you what it's going to be known for, so I put a question mark in here. Okay, I think it's going to be known for collaboration. It's going to be known for us between generations and between cultures and between skill sets and talents to really function well together, being able to harness our skills and our talents and our education and our training and our perspectives from where we were born and when we were born so that we can become the best version of the churches that we can be. That's just my, my prediction. And if it comes true, I said it first. <laughs> so next, um, I would like to say that we have three different categories as a small fellowship of churches. And actually, these categories are out there in the world, cultures of, of how to view leadership and the ways that they're evolving. The first one, the older, those who are in their mid-50s and up, that's the older generation, still having a lot of power and influence. That next group from the 30s up through early 50s, it's contemporary, and we'll describe these separately in a second. And then the, the, the group that's coming behind us, of which is represented right here, as those in their teens and 20s, and you guys are scaring me right now. I'm just kidding you. I'm just kidding. Okay. So what I would like to propose is that the older generation and the contemporary generation, we could do a better job uh, passing the torch with each other so that when the next generation comes after us of leadership, they will be able to see how we function. Okay. And even some of the challenges we've had in our community here, I think, are related to this dynamic. Okay. Now, here's some scriptures. Job said, or Bildad said to Job, ask the former generations to find out what their fathers learned. For we were only born yesterday and know nothing in our days on this earth about a shadow. Interesting. Job is probably in his 50s. This is his first family that he built. He runs into a crisis. He loses his family, his health, and all this. And this is the advice he's given. We're all born yesterday. We're young. We should always take the position that we can be pupils of the people that have gone on before us, okay? And then uh, Psalm 71, 18, even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. Wow, great passage. Uh, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness has no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. Great passages. And then Psalm 79, 13, Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount, recount your praise. So this is a really important theme in the psalmist perspective. Long, long time ago. A lot of these written 25, 3,000, 2,500, 3,000 years ago. Okay, now here's the old and here's the contemporary. Old, we come from a world that was going on for millennia, maybe three, four, five thousand years. The building of the pyramids to the building of bridges to the building of nations, the building of highway structures and the building of corporations and armies and, and to providing many jobs has been a very hierarchical, top-down world. It's not bad and it's not wrong. It just is. But there is a blind spot with hierarchy because people are uh, human and sometimes sinful and get in power and don't fully uh, 
embrace what their role ought to be, and that is that they don't have very, not very strong feedback mechanisms. So in the last 40 years, specifically since the late 60s, major paradigm changes in nations, companies, and churches. So the old, really, the leader knows best, usually did. Not always, though. Um, growth was the goal. If we didn't have growth, we wouldn't have jobs. We wouldn't have highways. We wouldn't be able to protect ourselves. Uh, direction is really important. Well, the newer cherishes a little bit different currencies. The best isn't always what the leader says. It might be more self-evident. Hey, let's have this discussion again. What's best? Uh, we see this younger generation values in their leadership paradigm, kind of health, you know, wellness, and values. And then the, they also think of the importance of feedback. So you have this kind of paradigm on the right, which is how organizations are starting to kind of sync up and fix some of the weaknesses with the previous model. But I don't think we need to have a trade-off. I think we should have all. I think we need direction. I think we need leadership. We certainly need growth. But we also need self-evident data to tell us what's working, what's not. We also need health and wellness, and we certainly want to make sure that we have feedback mechanisms. I think what we should stop allowing people to put us in an either-or world, right? And so these are kind of the battles that we're dealing with now in society and even in our churches. So uh, what we want to do is learn how to figure this out so the younger generation will be propelled to move on to the next era. Now, here's the model that's being proposed what organizations will look like in the future. I don't even understand it. I don't know what that means. We'll let them figure it out, okay? It has a lot more nodes and groups and stuff like that. Okay, more power to you. Have fun, future generation, figuring out how you'll do things. But us and the two generations, of which I'm kind of on the cusp of both, we know we have to work to make it so that you have seen in us a legacy of working uh, together. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, two, two passages here is, uh, number one, these are in relation to about what's ready to happen. We have Morgan McClellan, a family, her family are friends of ours from back in Chicago. We have a lot of history with that family. Morgan was a friend of my daughter, Taylor. Uh, they both were at school, at the same school at the same time. Taylor moved to the city to be in a city school. It wasn't a great school. Morgan moved to the same kind of schools out in the suburbs that we had been accustomed to. So yeah, we had this intercultural, inner city, suburban experiment between our kids. It was a valuable lesson. Um, Morgan is young. I'm thinking she's around 25, and she's isn't she beautiful. What a great spirit. Just her smile's contagious, right? You know her. Well, it says here about Timothy, who actually was a church leader, but he was leading older people. It says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for believers in speech, life, love, faith, and purity. We can, hey, guys, girls, we can learn from people that are younger than us. So let's never think of this as a one-directional thing. However, this passage here is one of my favorite passages. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The, next, the couple that will speak after them would be the Priestleys. Tim and Nancy are really special. Nancy is especially special. Tim's okay. Right? <laughs> Tim's okay. Now, we love the Priestleys. Uh, they are going to be able to share. And they are people that whose lives are worthy of imitation in that transitional period of a lot of things haven't been figured out yet. But at the close of our service today, we're going to have a fireside chat uh, where some very special conversations are going to take place from Al and Gloria Baird. And when I think of this passage, I think of them as they've got things that we can, like, glean from and look at the outcome of how they have uh, done things in their life. So at this point in time, I would like to introduce you to Morgan McClellan. Hey guys, um, my name is Morgan. Um, welcome to uh, the Westside Church. Um, so I'm a part of the singles professionals ministry that I love sitting over there in that corner. <laughs> um, and I'm so grateful to be a part of that ministry because it's made up of people of all ages, all stages in life. And I um, would like to share with you guys a little bit about my life as a 20-something. Um, just a brief history of my background. Um, many of you guys know or just heard even from Steve that I'm from Chicago. I grew up there. 
Um, and to parents who are faithful Christians in our sister church, the Chicago Church of Christ. And, um, and I wanted to read a scripture that to me really uh, gives a great example of how my parents lived. And it says in Psalm 78.4, it says, We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord and his power and his mighty wonders. Um, so it was my parents' vulnerability and their transparency um, and their practice of hospitality that really made Christianity and becoming a follower of Christ um, not only look fun for me, but actually attainable because they were real. So I encourage you parents just to be transparent and real with your kids. It definitely makes an impact. Um, so shortly after I studied the Bible and became a disciple, um, my family experienced extreme challenges. Um, one of those really difficult um, experiences was losing my brother to gun violence, something that I had seen a lot growing up in Chicago on television, but something that I never expected to cross over into the reality of my own life. Um, and just a few years after that, I almost lost my mom, who's my best friend, um, to a severe stroke that left her having to relearn how to walk and talk and complete simple tasks such as um, buttoning her, her clothing and picking up her utensils to eat. So it was a very extreme um, situation. And so in many ways, those hurts and those pains um, brought me closer to God, but um, it also unfortunately allowed and created um, like a numbness in my heart um, towards him as well. So um, what I wanted to share with you guys as a millennial and as a social media user, I know all of you guys or people of my generation love Facebook, we love Instagram, we love that kind of stuff. Um, but what I'm learning um, is that it, my love for um, a really cool thing has um, kind of made it a bit difficult for me to focus on my heart. Um, people of my generation can spend a lot of time um, on the digital, or focusing on making sure our, our digital life looks great. Um, like we're we spend a lot of time making sure that we use the right filters for our photos and that we make sure that our statuses are perfect and worthy of, of crying uh, tons of likes and shares. Um, and I think Satan has used that great tool to distract us from dealing with the matters of our heart. Um, and it's the very thing that God actually pays attention to, um, which is our heart. Um, so um, lately, I've been dealing a lot with my heart issues, um, and it's been really difficult because a lot of ugly things are surfacing that I just didn't, um, I just suppressed. Um, insecurities, idols that I put before God, um, lack of gratitude, selfishness, gluttony, deceitfulness, self-righteousness, all those things that um, I just didn't want other people to, to know about, and so I made sure that, again, like everything... Um, via social media looked great, but inside I was just really sad. Um, so I really want to close um, with this scripture that I feel like has become my favorite. Um, it says in Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 6, this is the message version. Um, it says, Cursed is the one who depends on mere humans, um, who thinks that he can make it on muscle alone, in my case, social media alone. <laughs> And set God aside as dead weight. He is like a tumbleweed on the prairie, out of touch with the good earth. He lives rootless and aimless in a land where nothing grows. But it gets better. It says, blessed is the man who trusts in me, God. The woman who sticks with God. They are like trees replanted in Eden, planting roots near the rivers. Never a worry through the hottest of summers. Never a dropping leaf. Serene and calm through drought bearing fresh fruit every season. Thank you. All right. So uh, when uh, Nancy and I moved to Cul uh, Culver City, uh, we first bought our house a few years back. We noticed that the Jewish family that sold us the home left a small ornament on the top of our door frame. Yeah, so on the left, you can't really see it in this light, but it's, uh, it's a little box on the top of our door frame, and it's known as a mezuzah, right? So, or more correctly, there's a small parchment placed within this box, which is actually the mezuzah. And it's a small paper, 
that contains two scriptures from the Jewish Torah, which is written in Hebrew, taken from Deuteronomy chapters 6 and 11. You can kind of see, oh, I'm sorry, go back one. So that on the right is another example. That's not ours, but that's an example of what one might look like. So there's a little piece of paper inside. So when thinking about the cross-generational draw of God's kingdom, the mezuzah and its meaning, I believe, are very appropriate. For the scriptures inside point to the great responsibility that we have to teach the next generation the essence of what it means to connect with God. And as a parent, obviously, it's close to our hearts, uh, the next generation. And I also have the privilege of being one of the preteen kids kingdom teachers this term. So I wanted to honor the preteens and have them stand up um, because I'm so proud of them in the back there. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I love them so much because they already have so much deep biblical insight at this point in their life. It's really amazing. I learned so much from them. They're really trying to figure out where they fit into this world, um, not just how they look or what they wear, although I know that's important to them, um, but really how they make a difference and how they impact this world at their age. Um, So I'm just, I'm like a proud mom up here. Um, But in regards to the Deuteronomy scripture inside, I wanted to read a part of that passage um, from Deuteronomy 6. And it really is um, a really meaningful scripture. We see that we have a responsibility for the next generation. And we have to um, really know what we're making that foundation based upon. So I want to read Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 1. This is when uh, Moses, right after he gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites, and they were establishing uh, their new nation, it says, These are the commandments, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commandments that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home And when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So the Old Testament scriptures laid a strong responsibility on the parents to impress on their children these commands of God. They needed to make an intentional effort to teach their children to be a model for them, to impress on them an awareness of the presence of God and of a love for him on the next generation. So part of how they did this back then was creating a whole culture that guided and directed the people in their thoughts and in their actions and then their experiences toward God. From the tabernacle that they built and then later on the temple from the annual feasts that they would share in to the very way that they dressed and even the door frames on their homes, these traditions were designed to train the future generations of what God had done for their ancestors. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, he came into the same culture where typically it was the older men, right, who were in authority who held and held up as the protectors and the teachers and the disseminators of these truths that were to be passed on. So as he did so often, Jesus flipped the conventional wisdom on its head and with it, this whole societal order. So read with me right now from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. 
It says, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. This is a fascinating passage. People were trying to bring their little children to Jesus for him to bless them. Now, think about that. What would it have been like to have been touched and blessed by Jesus as a little child? Yes, I was blessed as a little child by the Son of God. Straight-A student. Good citizenship awards. I've done a few things in my time. I, I actually created this computer out of Legos. And yes, we actually edited that Lego movie on my computer. So sidebar, how many of you guys have actually seen the Lego movie so far? Oh, great movie, right? Did you like it? Okay. I normally don't do this, but go see the movie. After watching the second time, this idea for a sermon hit me. All I know about building a church, I learned from the Lego movie. So it was just an idea. So please watch it, right? For now, I won't give away the secret of the craggle. But I'm sorry for the detour there. So anyway, back to Jesus, right? He was touching children. This was a sometimes traditional practice where the rabbi or the elder would would, uh, bless the children. But here, Jesus' own disciples would have none of it. The word for rebuke here, they rebuke the parents. The word literally means it's an emotionally passionate scolding. So what was it that prompted Jesus' disciples to effectively yell at the parents and turn them away uh, so forcibly? Perhaps they felt they were being protective of Jesus' time, right? They thought... Jesus' time and energy were far too valuable to expend on small children. But as you read this passage, it's so cool. Not only does it appear that he actually loved being with these children, he uses them in this experience to, to make a core teaching about God's kingdom and how to find it and how to in, enter it. So, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, that, I'm still going. So anyway, the conventional wisdom that said that we are a model for the next generation, Jesus right here says, no. No, look at these little children. They are the model for you. He went so far as to say, unless you change and become like these little children, you can't even enter the kingdom of God without some kind of childlikeness. The kingdom of God just wouldn't be something that they could grasp, that they could understand. Perhaps we've heard this particular teaching of Jesus before, but for these people, even for his own disciples, it was entirely countercultural almost subversive. See if I said that word again, so don't hold it against me. All right. So children in their culture were blank slates. They needed to be taught, right, and coached. They needed to be disciplined and impressed upon. Without that training, they wouldn't go in the right direction. They couldn't become good. But here, Jesus says... There is something about children that is not only noteworthy, but imitation-worthy. There is something about children that is innately good. 
Now, I'm sure at this point they're asking, how can a child that has not yet been fully trained, not yet been disciplined, have something to teach us, right? That's because perhaps Jesus was saying God created them not just as blank slates, but with something that is good. God put in them a divine spark. You see, I think about it, I think a child has a lifetime of learning ahead of them, right? A child has this. We're supposed to be childlike. They are at the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. What they know right now is so little compared to what they have to learn and discover. A child is full of wonder, of awe. And a desire to learn. To a child, the world is full of new possibilities. And they are open to these possibilities. So then I started thinking, what does it mean to be on the opposite side? To be an adult, right? This is one where perhaps we already know everything. Or we know enough where there's nothing really new or fresh or amazing. There are a few phrases that came to my mind as I was thinking about, um, which seem to reflect this perspective. Now, they're well-known phrases, so I thought, "Mm, how about if I uh, give you the first part, and then if you try to complete that phrase, okay? All right, so bear with me. You might not get it. My wife thought, eh, I don't know. But um, we'll try it anyway. I'll start. You try to complete. Been there. Yes, good. It is what? Yes, okay. And then, so this next one, there's a few right answers for it. It's actually gone through an evolution, so let's see how you answer. Same old. Ooh, okay, so a few answers there, right? So this phrase started long ago, same old story, right? And then someone got cute with it or melodic and said, same old song. And then, you know, someone added same old song and dance. But then it recently, it's become same old, same old, right? Even the repetitive stuff gets repetitive. You know, in a few years, I mean, someone will be more creative and say, same old, Same old, same old, right? It just keeps on going. They say, these phrases to me say, the world is limited. Everything is the same. There's nothing new. No new possibilities. You can just feel in them the inherent lack of faith. Yet, this is the world we can live in. Things fit in a box. God fits in a box. It's not the world of the child. So our five-year-old son recently gave us an example of this world of a child that actually really humbled um, and inspired me. Uh, All week, our son Boston, his stomach had been hurting off and on. And uh, during uh, when he's at home, we would stop. He would say, Mom, my stomach hurts. And so we would stop everything and we would pray for him to feel better. And uh, honestly, it's because he asked me, he goes, Mom, stop and pray for me. Um, And so later that week uh, at school, he came home and said, uh, my stomach was hurting at school. And so, uh, but, you know, he's like, but I'm fine because I had a friend pray for me. So I asked him a little more about that. What did he mean by that? And um, so he told me that he was on the playground, and he asked his friend Magnus to pray for him, but uh, Magnus was too busy playing. Um, so he asked his friend Isla, this little girl, he asked her to pray for him, which is so sweet. Um, but her response was, I don't know how to pray. And so my son <laughs> tells her, just say these words. So he tells her, he says, Father God, help Boston's stomach feel better. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> so, so she said it, exactly those words, and he said, and my stomach felt better. <laughs> so, 
But I was so moved by the faith of his prayer, you know, just that sincerity to, to, to be able to teach someone else how to talk to God. And, uh, and for Boston, somehow this made sense, that uh, you're able to... Uh... ...children he was holding in his arms. Jesus' good news is something for all generations, young and old alike. But perhaps the string that holds us together that allows us to have respect and honor for the old ways of doing things or the new ways of doing things is the spirit of the child. That of discovery, of wonder, and awe. When we come together, there certainly is a rightness for those who are older, for those who have gone before, to teach those who are younger, who are just setting out. But instead of simply defining what the world is and putting it all in a box, which is just basically a transfer of knowledge, perhaps it's this is how you learn. This is how you discover. Let's discover together. Right now, we're going to hear uh, from someone that most of us look up to quite a bit and honor them for how much they've poured themselves out for our church over decades. They have been a couple, really a family, who is always helping pass things on to the next generation. However, perhaps the most honoring way I can present them is to say that Al and Gloria Barrett are some of the most childlike seniors I know. I want to welcome Al and Gloria. It's going to warm up here and here a moment because we're going to have a fireside chat. And so what's going to happen is, um, like I said, you know, um, this is a time to hear from Al and Gloria personally about some things that they want to share for you. I want you to know from the perspective of Trisha and I, uh, coming into the uh, Los Angeles family here, especially here on the west side, um, as outsiders coming in as kind of a specialist to look at things that have, dynamics at play, things that have gone wrong, hurts and things that have happened, uh, that's hard to have somebody come into your backyard and do this kind of stuff. But Al and Gloria have made this, in all of our interactions with them, very easy and very transparent. And uh, that is an important thing for you to know as shepherds, uh, the authenticity that we experience in this process. And I just ask you that you give them your, your hearts and pay close attention. Thank you. church began, you can't hear? Now can you hear? Okay, good. Um, It's pretty amazing that the L.A. church began almost 25 years ago. It'll be 25 years this August, uh, 1989. And uh, Gloria and I were fortunate enough to be at that first service at the Beverly Hills High School and it was an incredible service. There were almost 1,400 people at the first service, which really gave a vision of what could be, I think, in the L.A. church. Uh, and uh, our daughter, Carrie, uh, was a part of the, the, that first team. Uh, Chuck and Carol Bray uh, were on that first team. And uh, maybe, maybe some of Robin Horton was on that first team. Uh, and... Uh, Michael Keyes was one of the very first baptisms in the L.A. church. And uh, a little bit later, then, our our daughter Christy uh, came to L.A. And then in 1992, uh, we came to L.A. Uh, We've been here almost 22 years. And uh, we came uh, basically for two different reasons. One, there was a need for better communication among the churches and the idea of starting a new world sector called Media Law that gave birth to KNN. 
so we came to do that. We also came to help consolidate the work in the Middle East and uh, for L.A. to become a major part of, of that work in the Middle East, which, which has done. And by the way, let me say, uh, just because our special contribution is coming up in June, please, more than ever, we need the sacrifice for the Middle East. Uh, most of you are aware of the death of Maher, the challenges there, and all the challenges in, in, in so much of the Middle East right now, in Syria, and in Egypt, and in Sudan, and uh, in Lebanon, and just all over. I mean, we, we, need, we need God to intervene, but we also need the help, and the brothers and sisters there need our prayers, but also our contribution. Uh, we landed uh, in 1992 in Thousand Oaks. Uh, it was called God's Country. Uh, you know, it was a nice place. And uh, Gloria and I led what was at that time the Ventura region. But it, our next move was to beautiful downtown Bellflower. And uh, for those of you who know the contrast, uh, it's a little bit humorous. And, uh, but we, uh, we worked in South Central for several different years. Uh, and then after that, we worked in AMS. Uh, and uh, then almost 10 years we've been in the West. Uh, very first t time in the West was Andy and Tammy. It was a great, great time. And, of course, God has done some great things, I think, here in the West. Then uh, almost four years ago, uh, I uh, ran into the age of 70 years. And uh, at that time, you know, uh, okay, you're going to retire. Uh, we don't believe in retirement. Uh, so we, uh, we termed the word, we're going to rewire. And uh, rather than just being turned out to pasture, we thought, well, you know, we still got some good years ahead of us. And uh, our passion for a long time has been to raise up elders. And uh, one of the crying needs is to raise up elders outside the United States. Almost half of the ICOC membership is outside of the, uh, of the United, outside the United States. At that time, uh, four years ago, only three churches outside the United States had elders. And so we, we said, you know what, we want to spend a significant part of our time helping some of these churches raise up elders. At the same time, our kids who live in three different places, San Francisco and Phoenix and, and in uh, D.C., said, well, we want a part of you too. So we demand some of your time. So basically, we, we decided at that time we would be in L.A. halftime and we would travel outside of L.A. with our kids and, and working with churches. And that first year, after, after I hit 70, uh, we actually traveled to 16 different nations and 16 different churches looking for churches to help raise up elders. And uh, that sort of took us to our, our next chapter. Yeah, I want to uh, share just a little bit about 2011 because it was um, uh, the year that I turned 70, and then we also were married for 50 years. So that was quite a year just in itself. But then to think that at that age and at that time in our life, we were going to get to travel outside the United States and visit 16 different countries for the purpose that we went. And so... Um, during that time, we didn't get sick, and we didn't have jet lag, and it was just uh, an, a year to remember. Um, we had the time of our life, you know, and, and of course, we're with you, too. So two, uh, 2012 then came, and we thought we were going to do the same thing. We went to Manila, and we went to Mexico, and then God said, no, I think you're going to stop for a while, and that's when I found out I had cancer. And uh, so for the next six months, we went through that, and you were all such an important part of that for us. We can't be thankful enough for all that you've done and served and prayed and cared and loved and helped and supported us all through that time. And thankfully, then, my cancer's in remission. So I'm so, so grateful for that. And so... After I had cancer, then the West Side seemed to, to need us. We were here, and we, as far as we were concerned, we were here to stay. We're, we're here in the West Side uh, for as long as God wants us. We had no plans to go anywhere else, to be anywhere else. And uh, one day I came home, and Al said, 
you're not going to believe the phone call I just got. And this was, I think, the last day of October. And I said, what was it? And he had gotten a phone call from the Phoenix Church asking us if we would consider coming and working with them in the church they are doing basically what we do here to help in the eldership, um, to raise up more elders, and to still be free to, to visit our kids and all. And, of course, the, the thing about that is that our, our youngest daughter, Carrie and Steve Hiddleston, and three of our grandkids, and the youngest being the adopted one, Nyla, that you've all heard about, that's where they live. So, needless to say, that got our attention. But it was also a strange thing for us to even consider because we hadn't thought about it, done that, you know, hadn't sought that, hadn't planned on that. It was, it was really out of the blue. But uh, one of my favorite verses is in Psalm 31 that says, My times are in your hands. So, you know, we never know what God's going to do, and our life has been full of adventure, and it looks like God still wants us to be on, a, on an adventure. So we're, we're praying, we've been praying about this, and um, of course had to talk to our kids, so we, we talked to each one of them, and they said, Mom and Dad, you need to do that. Um, somehow, especially with my cancer, they began to... Um, be the ones to kind of check on us and make sure we were doing okay. And I guess that happens when you get older. So we have to hear that, that they want to know that we're doing okay. So the idea of our being with one of our kids that can keep an eye on us was appealing to all three of them. So we, we had to consider their thinking about it, and we got lots and lots of advice around us and um, have, have really prayed so much about it. And uh, one, of our, one of my prayers has been, uh, like Moses said to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. And uh, we want to do God's will. We want to be led by God's spirit. And so at this point, that, that seems to be God's plan for us. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I preach getting advice. I believe in getting advice. We got a lot of advice for this. But one of the questions was, okay, how do we time this? Because the Phoenix Church has said, we'll take you whenever we can get you. Don't feel any pressure from any, any particular time. And so last Sunday, uh, Gloria and I sat down with the, the uh, ministry transition team uh, that uh, the Statens have put together here in the West to ask them for two pieces of advice. Number one is how soon should we make this known? And secondly, when do you think would be the best time for us to make this transition? The first piece of advice was tell people as soon as you can. Uh, and so here we are, uh, and we're telling you. Uh, the second p- uh, piece of advice was when should we go, and they felt like probably the best thing to do would be to transition this summer. And so probably uh, on the time frame of uh, late June, uh, early July, we'll be, we'll be moving uh, to Phoenix. I know that uh, these have been a challenging past two years for all of us. Uh, we've uh, had a number of our friends who have uh, moved to other parts of the L.A. church. Uh, we're searching for uh, a lead evangelist uh, and, and going through these. And, and so one of our concerns has been, okay, how would this be perceived by you? Uh, because uh, we, we don't want to at all do anything to convey that we don't have great vision and hope for the West. We absolutely do. Uh, I've, got to believe, I've got to tell you, the West honestly is, is the richest pool of talent that I have ever seen in my life. Uh, you guys are absolutely phenomenal. And we have nothing but great vision for the West. I think it is key that we find the right couple to move in here permanently to to help lead and inspire. But uh, I, I want you to know that uh, you guys are absolutely phenomenally uh, magnificent. And I believe that God has got incredible plans uh, for the West. And I'm very eager to see how God unfolds that. I hope that you all appreciate Mark and Catherine Schoen. Uh They have sacrificed so much to be a part uh, of the group here. Uh, they just have... Most of you know have recently sold their home in Manhattan Beach and have now got a rental home 
in Culver City because they want to be here in, in the presence of this. You know, Justin is now at Culver City High School. And uh, so uh, Mark, as an elder, is just great. I hope that you embrace them in a great way. The, the coastal region uh, has been blessed. We've got, we've got six elders in the coastal region right now. Almost half of the elders in the L.A. Church are in the coastal region. And I really believe, and as you, as you know from our love and desire to raise up elders outside the United States, I believe God's desire for mature churches is to have strong elderships. And, and I believe that, that you got that. So I really, and I think that God has really blessed us in bringing Steve and Tricia Staten to us and really helping us through this transition time. I think they're a godsend to all of us. So I think the future is very, very bright. And uh, so uh, th this is not goodbye. Uh, first of all, you've got to put up with us until at least this summer. Uh, and uh, although we will be doing a lot of travel during this time because we have, we're going to be going to the Middle East and some other things like that. But uh, uh, there again, uh, Phoenix is only a six-hour drive away. And uh, uh, you got an open invitation. Uh, uh, come visit Phoenix in August and, uh, <laughs> and see how blessed you really are. And, uh, but anyway, God bless you. This is not goodbye, but we did want to let you know uh, what, what we feel like God is unfolding for us. And we want your prayers, we want your blessing, and to know how much we love you and how much vision we have for you. Closing comment, one of the things that Trish and I have heard the most frequently since we have gotten involved here is just how many years of marriage and family help they've received from Alan Gloria. And uh, that stays, okay? Uh, when they uh, go to be with their family, that'll stay with the church because that has become embedded in the people that uh, we are in our families. And so um, I'm very confident of that. Let's uh, go ahead and have a, a prayer. God and Father, thank you so much for the uh, different experiences and ages and uh, walks that people have had today and sharing their perspective as we all carry the same message from generation to generation. And Father, thank you for our young, the preteens that are with us today. Father, give them, impart in on them all the best that they can get from us for the future. Uh, they will lead us one day. And Father, thank you for what we've uh, learned today and also for Al and Gloria for their years of service and uh, the things that they have imparted that are still continuing on. Bless them in this transition. Make it a time of great comfort and meaning and uh, building up the West Side. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are free to go.